This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, since I'm sort of the first in the series, I just wanted to kind of bring up a couple of points that sort of all brought us here. So, obviously, as Dr. Enrique has mentioned, we're all part of emergency medicine. So, for those of us here in the U.S., we we'll probably think emergency medicine. Yeah, I mean, emergency medicine's everywhere, right? But that's not true in most parts of the world. And actually, in low-resource settings, that is definitely not true. So emergency medicine doesn't even exist. And so, um, so a lot of our work is around trying to recognize the value of emergency medicine across um, different settings and then trying to build those systems in places where they may not currently exist. So one of the ways that we do this is by partnering with, um, with professional organizations that already exist um, in different settings to help build up emergency care. So one of the ones that I'll be talking about is what Dr. Enriquez was talking about, which is the African Federation for Emergency Medicine. Now, the World Health Organization, as you guys all know, the WHO, they recently had a, um, at their World Health Assembly, we're emphasizing the importance of emergency care worldwide and how it saves lives. Adult lives, pediatric lives, it saves lives. And one of the things I pointed out um, that was important in trying to build emergency care in settings where it didn't already exist was training. So education and training. So taking a workforce that may or may not already be you know, working in certain capacities and really trying to say, okay, this is what you need to know about emergency care and this is how you can deliver in the settings where you are. Um, recognizing that every setting has different resources, right, different limitations. And one of those limitations often is human resources. So you may be taking people from places that don't normally do medicine or even health care and then training them up in emergency care. So one of the things I've been sort of focusing on with AFEM is trying to to support this sort of buildup of human resources through education. So one of the ways that we thought we should do this is by developing curriculum, and that helps to train people in different places. So this is sort of what I'm going to be talking about today is sort of my experiences developing curricula for these low-resource settings. What are some of the things I've done? What are the lessons I've learned? And then what are some of the challenges I've faced? And I'm hoping that you guys can actually help me with some of this. <laughs> All right. So I have no financial disclosures, sadly. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about – I'm going to just give you a quick outline of how I'm going to be talking about this so you guys can see. So I'm going to start out with a little background. I'm going to talk about the state of emergency care, and especially pediatric emergency care, training and education in Africa, since we're talking about AFEM. I'm going to describe a little bit more about AFEM, talk to you about what they do and how they do it. And then I'm going to launch into sort of our project. So I'm going to talk to you about the process of developing a curriculum. What does that look like? What could it look like? And what did it look like for us? What did the timeline look like? And then what are some of our results? So as, you, as you'll see, and I'll describe this later, um, curriculum development is a, a multi-step process. And one of them is going to be a needs assessment. You kind of need to start at the, at the ground and say, okay, what is it that people really need to know here? And then we're going to talk about how did we take that, those results from a needs assessment, and turn it into learning objectives. Okay, this is what people need to know. Now what? What do we do with this? And then I'm going to talk about how we took that, we created curriculum, and then we piloted it in different places. And I'll explain what Tier 1 and Tier 2 mean later. 
And then finally, I'm going to bring to you guys what our future plans are to see if you guys can help me with some ideas. All right. So what is the current state of emergency care training um, in Africa? So this map was actually taken from a paper that was published in 2017 um, showing the formal emergency medicine training programs that currently exist on the continent. Now, the only addition that has been um, in the last few years is Mozambique. Mozambique also has an emergency medicine residency program right now. There are no formal pediatric-specific sort of a, acute care or emergency care training programs in Africa right now, for the, with the exception of um, there's one in Kenya that's sort of a critical care and emergency care program combined together. Um, called PECC, but that otherwise, it's all mostly adult-centric. So why, why is pediatrics important? Well, this, if you guys have never seen these before, these are population pyramids. And what they show you is that in most African countries, the population is heavily weighed towards a younger population. So the, ma the vast majority of people in these countries are going to be below the age of 18, which is sort of like the traditional way we think about pediatrics. So when you think about that, that means the majority of people who are going to be critically ill and injured are probably going to also be under 18. So that's why having something more specific to a younger age group, a training that really focuses on what are the big medical issues for 0 to 18 years is going to be really important. Okay, so a little bit of um, background AFEM. Um, as we said, AFEM stands for the African Federation for Emergency Medicine. Um, they're a huge professional organization that is really trying to build and grow quality emergency care across the entire continent. And they do this in several ways. They do this through leadership development. Um, they do it through mentoring. They do it through advocacy, going to governments and really saying, hey, this is why you should spend money on emergency care. This is why you should build it up in your country. Um, and then they also, as I mentioned, they support education and training um, across different countries. This group right here, I know many of these people, this is actually the first emergency medicine residency um, class to graduate from Muhambili National Hospital in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And many of them have stayed on and been, they are now faculty at Muhambili and they teach um, more like continuing classes of residence. And others have gone on to other parts of Tanzania and started emergency care in their parts of the, of the country. All right. So the members of AFEM, there's over 2,000, came to us and they said, you know what, we really need something more pediatric specific to help us be able to take better care of critically ill and injured children where we work. So we decided, okay, let's get together a group of sort of pediatric emergency medicine experts, those who've worked in low-resource settings before, um, including our colleagues in Africa, and let's, and let's see if we can't create a curriculum that would be able to serve their needs. So what could a curriculum development process look like? So for those of you who've done them before, you probably are, this is probably pretty familiar to you. Um, this is a book um, published by Patricia Thomas and David Kern. Um, it's extremely popular. It's called a Curriculum Development for Medical Education. And this is kind of the framework that we used. It outlines six steps for how you can start to develop a curriculum. Now, you won't, not everybody uses something like this. You're going to see a couple of different ways to do it. 
but this is one way. This is one I particularly like because I feel like it's sort of a ground-up sort of approach. So as I mentioned, the very first step is problem identification and doing sort of a general needs assessment. So thinking about, okay, if I want to educate people, what is it that I think they should know? And this is not always that, like, it's not that clear. It's not, listen, you're not just like, oh, yeah, obviously this, right? So you have to have a lot of experience working in these settings to say, oh, these are the types of things that we really need to be focusing on. So you really have to go into a place and ask people, okay, what is it that you're seeing? What kinds of sick kids are you taking care of? You know, what would help you take care of them better? And then you can go into a sort of a targeted needs assessment, so really taking that information and sort of trying to drill down even further to find out some of the finer points. From there, you can develop some goals and objectives. You need to um, think about your educational strategies. This is also super important, and we're going to come back to this at the end. Um, is how are you going to teach people? Is it lecture style, like a la this room right now? Or are, are we going to do small groups? Are we going to do something more interactive? What is, a, what is the best way to get this material across to people? And then finally, really important, is evaluation and feedback. You need to know, is what I'm doing working? Is it doing what I wanted it to do or what I thought it was going to do? Or is it not, maybe there's an unintended consequence or something else is happening instead? So we sort of take, we took this model and we decided to, to build our curriculum this way. Now what there's, in contrast, for example, you will see there's some people where they'll take established goals and objectives. So let's say, like from the U.S. does this very nicely. They'll take U.S. programs, accredited programs, like say an emergency medicine residency program. All the ones in the U.S. based on accreditation boards have to have meet certain things. Their, their residents have to learn certain things. They'll take those objectives and they'll apply them to another setting. That does work in some instances and it may not work in others. And I'm, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, there's pros and cons to both approaches. The other thing we had to consider when we were thinking about how are we going to build this curriculum is like, gosh, there's a lot of providers out there right now taking care of kids. Like, um, you know, everybody has a different set of, of learning needs, right? So what we decided was we need to break this up into three tiers. There's three groups of providers who are taking care of kids. The first group is tier one, and we're going to consider that your sort of novice nurses and your pre-hospital providers. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, pre-hospital providers are your, like your, for, for us, that's like your EMS, right? That's your paramedics that show up. This is the care that you get in the field before you come into a hospital setting. Tier two, um, so depending on where you work, um, there's different terms for different people, but your medical officers and your senior nurses, so your medical officers are kind of, they're going to be like your nurse practitioners, your physician's assistants. It's what we call our advanced practice providers in the U.S. And then finally, tier three is sort of your um, specialist level, okay? So your emergency medicine physicians, your pediatricians, your internists. So these would be kind of your specialists or those training to be specialists, which we call our residents. So each group has sort of very unique learning needs. Um, and so we, were, we wanted to create basically three different curricula tailored toward each group. Okay, so here's our timeline. A little messy. But <laughs> first thing I'd like you to notice is that 
it's been a long time. Right? We've been working on this for three years, and we are still going. So what I've learned is anything worth doing takes a long time. Um, so as you can see here, we started back in March of 2017 with a needs assessment. We did this in two different hospitals in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Um, as you can see, a lot of this, you know, you'll see Tanzania mentioned a lot. So UCSF has had a standing relationship with, um, with Muhambili National Hospital in Dar es Salaam for a long time. Um, and so we have, off of those partnerships and those relationships that we've built, we've been able to do a lot of these um, collaborative projects with them. So that's why you'll see their name come up a lot. Um, from the needs assessment, we were able to develop learning objectives for all different tiers of providers, and we kind of reviewed them over and over amongst our working group um, and um, over conference calls. And then finally, we kind of narrowed down a list of learning objectives for each tier, and then we said, okay, time to review and see if we're really on track. So we went to the African Congress for Emergency Medicine. It's, held, it's a conference held every other year. Um, and it was held in Rwanda in 2018. And so we went there and we said, this is a great place to test it out. So we basically got a whole room full of people and, and we had them vote on each objective. So it was kind of, it's, it's what's called a modified Delphi format. And I'll talk, to that, I'll talk to you about that a little bit more later. We just had them vote and decide which objectives, which learning objectives we're going to stay in and which ones weren't. Finally, once we decided that, it was time to write the curriculum. So we started with tier one, right? Because that's going to be the vast majority of your providers. That's going to reach the biggest possible group. So we decided to start with a tier one curriculum. Um, and then we also needed to create evaluation tools, right? Because remember I said evaluation is super important because that's going to tell me if I'm really, are they learning what I'm teaching them? Um, so I needed to be able to know. So you had to create these tools to decide, are they actually learning? And we'll talk a little bit more about how I did that. Um, and then we piloted it again in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Then we created the Tier 2 curriculum, and we were able to pilot that in Liberia. So we piloted that at JFK Medical Center in Monrovia, Liberia, um, just this past fall in November. So we were, it was nice because we were able to get one West African site, because Liberia is in West Africa, and then one East African site to sort of pilot at. And then right now, um, both are sort of, tier one is being reviewed by AFEM leadership um, to, um, before it gets released onto their website. So it'll be made freely, publicly, openly available for everyone. And then tier two, we're actually in the process of collecting, of um, analyzing our data, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so I'm going to get a little bit more granular. Um, so for a needs assessment, so, so going all the way back to the beginning when we talked about the needs assessment, um, what do you think the goals of a needs, a needs assessment should be? You can shout it out if you want. What, should, what do I need to know from them? Yeah, I need to know what are they seeing, right? Like what injuries are they seeing? What kind of sick kids are they seeing, right? Totally. Yep. What, yeah, what do I teach them, right? Because I don't know what to teach if I don't know what they're seeing. What else? Right, what do they already know? Yeah, what's their baseline knowledge? Absolutely. Yep, you don't want to be teaching something to people they already know. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What kind of stuff do they already have, right? Yeah, 
with supplies, what resources, that's often a huge thing. Anything else? Those are all great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What is, yeah, what's sort of, what's the environment in which they're practicing, right? Yeah, because that, that has a lot to do with how they practice, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. Yeah, how, how do traditional healers play a role into what happens to kids when they get sick? Yeah, and, we'll, and that's, that's great. That's going to come up uh, as part of our needs assessment. And then also, how do you teach it, right? Like, in, in, in the U.S., I think our, our medical education system is moving away from sort of this rote didactic, have people talk at you, although I am talking at you now, kind of format, to really, you know, try to move to other methods of education. But in a large part of the world, especially in low-resource settings, you're, that's still... The, the norm, right? People are, you have this lecture-style format and so forth. So, so you want to take into account how are people used to learning, and then would they be open to other forms of learning? You can't just assume they will be. You know, we think that small group learning is better. I think it's small group learning. But, but you know, sometimes people aren't, um, if I was to ask the same questions in a different audience, I might not get so much participation, right? Because culturally, there's a lot of different, you know, expectations that go around a learning environment. Perfect. You guys nailed it. All right, so I want to know what to teach, how to teach it, and what are people's attitudes and perceptions about challenges of caring for kids in these settings? Like, like you mentioned, resources, um, you know, supplies, tools. What are you know, cultural healers, like what traditional healers? What role do they play? Okay, so how we decided to approach it is we decided to do what's called a mixed methods format. So that just means that I took kind of, we sort of took a couple different approaches. So one was what we call a qualitative approach, which means, for those of you who've done this before and those of you who haven't, but it's basically trying to really get some, sort of like talking to people and trying to get like really detailed responses. You know, you're trying to get open-ended questions to try to understand what is it that people are really thinking, okay? And so you have to do this in like an interview format or maybe some small focus groups um, so that you can really get some good, rich feedback. And then the qualitative, which is what we're all kind of used to in medicine, but that was kind of saying, okay, let's look at let's look at data. Okay, so what we did is we took a year's worth of pediatric visits to their emergency department, which was over sixteen thousand, as you can see, sixteen thousand and five visits, and we said, okay, what are what are the diagnoses? What are what is it that people what are kids coming in with, and what are we treating them for? So when we put this data together, in terms of what to teach. This is what we came up with. So uh, you can see here on the left, this is the qualitative. So what that means is when I did these interviews, I like taped people and it got transcribed. And every time I, heard, I saw the word um, trauma, I was like, okay, trauma. Or every time I saw the word um, you know, anemia. So I would count like a little, you get a little mark, right? And then I, we would rate them by what are the, the most commonly mentioned things that people felt like they needed to learn. And then here on the right, this is the quantitative. So this is the 16,005 visits that we took from their medical record. And we actually categorized them by what are the most common diagnoses. And you put them side by side. And what you find is that eight of the top 15 on both sides are actually a match. So that's kind of nice, right? So one that's telling you what people are telling you is actually, pan you know, that's actually true. Right? Like, I can take it from the data, I can take it from the visits and see. And then, I'll, and then on the other side of that coin, I can say, oh, if I only looked at the data, then I wouldn't really understand what people were thinking behind why they feel like they need to learn about it. 
And we also asked some questions around how do you want to learn? So what we found was people preferred shorter courses. Okay, so our residency training programs are what? Three years long, four years long, right? For an all, and for a lot of people in a lot of settings, this is not, you know, this is this is not possible, right? They can't just be like, oh, I'm out for three years and I'm gonna go do this course and um, you know I can't I'm gonna support my family or whatever else is going on, right? So so they really wanted a shorter course and what they preferred is something that was they preferred live, but they definitely wanted either live or or both. Like either something together where it was hands-on, but you could maybe do some, some learning on your own. So what we call that asynchronous learning. Um, and then we took a lot of that rich data that we got from all those interviews and those focus groups, and we were like, okay, when you take care of a sick kid and things don't go the way you want them to, why do you think that happens? And then we asked them. So then people just, you know, they gave us all kinds of different answers. And we took all of that and we broke it down to these sort of three, you know, areas. So there's the care before they get to the hospital, the care while they're in the emergency department or ED, and then what happens to them after they leave the emergency department. If they're sick enough to need to be admitted to the hospital, so into an inpatient setting, then what? And a lot of the, 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 um, the codes that we saw here were exactly kind of what you would think and what you were mentioning, right? The role of cultural beliefs and traditional healers, right? So they felt like that slowed down um, parents bringing in their kids to uh, an emergency department or a real hospital because they were taking them traditional healers first. And so that would delay their care. Or parents may or may not recognize that how, serious, um, how seriously ill their child may be or injured their child may be, and that might delay their care as well. So these are just some of the, and then of course here, lack of pediatric specific supplies, equipment, medication. This was, this was a very common theme running across the hospital. Um, and this runs across a lot of low resource settings. So as I mentioned, we used what's called a modified Delphi process. And it was semi-anonymous, so people could vote anonymously. Um, and they would just like write down on their papers. And basically what we did is we would throw up every objective learning objective, and we'd say, okay, yes or no, keep it in or toss it out. And you had to get 70% yes to stay in, and if you were under 30% or under, we threw it out. If you were between 30% and 70%, we would, we would open the floor for discussion, and we'd say, okay, what would make you want to keep this in? Like, is it a change in wording? Or is it, you know, are you just worried that it's dangerous? Or, you know, what is it? And then we would have an open debate, and then you would get a chance to re-vote again. And if it hit 70%, great. If not, you are out. So that's kind of how we went through all the different, um, this iterative process of, of these learning objectives to make sure that everybody was on board with it. And just so you know, there were a total of 161 learning objectives that, were, um, that made it through. Tier one, obviously, as you get um, to the higher tiers, you're expected to know more. So there's more learning objectives. Um, and then these are just some of the general categories that the learning objectives fell under. And just to give you an example, so this is how one could look across the three different tiers. So a tier one provider for the topic of altered mental status, we just want them to recognize the different etiologies and the initial management for altered mental status in someone. So that's someone who's not acting all there. Um, and then recognize indications for transfer. Because we're, we're assuming that if you're a tier one provider, you're probably working in a place that doesn't, may not have some advanced care. So we want you to know when's a good time for you to move on to more advanced care. 
Um, tier two, we want you to know a little bit more. We'd want you to under, really under, understand the medical management. And then finally, in tier three, we get super you know, specific, specific conditions that can lead to altered mental status. We expect you to know about those and how to treat those. So let's talk about the tier one pilot and implementation. So we conducted a training. Um, so it was conducted over two and for tier one. We got that, like I said, that was our priority. We developed that curriculum and we trained 15 nurses over two and a half days in uh, the emergency medicine department of Mohimbili National Hospital, which is the one that we've sort of been partnering with. The training consisted of lectures, um, skill stations, and simulation scenarios. So it was sort of a hodgepodge of stuff. Now, ideally, when we developed this curriculum, we wanted it to be more asynchronous. We created these PowerPoint lectures that had little notes at the bottom that you could literally read like somebody was talking to you. And then um, we expected people to review those beforehand. And then for the hands-on part, we were just going to focus on the skill stations and the simulated scenarios. But what we found is sometimes it's hard to motivate people to review all these modules <laughs> before you come. And so, um, so we kind of did a mix of the two then. So we had them review some on their own, and then we, um, and then we taught them, like literally lectured to them on, for some of those, and then combined it. So for evaluation and feedback, we, we employed self-efficacy surveys. And we gave those to people before and after the training. We used knowledge tests. And I'll, I'll, show, I'll talk to you each, uh, specifically about each one. Knowledge tests before and after. And then, just like someone else was mentioning, you want to know what they already know, right? So you want to do a pre, and then you want to do a post. And then we really wanted to see how would people change their behavior, or would they change their behavior? And so we, we tried... We, try to figure out a different, few different ways to do this, and we came up with what's called these critical action checklists. So we said, okay, for certain scenarios, we expect these are the important things you need to do. These are critical actions, and we observed them, and we, we said you either did it or you didn't do it, okay? And then we tried to compare that pre and post to say, yes, um, they did do it or they didn't do it before and after. And then finally, we interviewed participants to kind of get some feedback on what they thought about the training. Should we be changing stuff? Um, do they feel like it was very effective for them? So just to give you an idea, this is literally just to give you an idea of our schedule. <laughs> so, um, so this was day one and this was day two of the training. And as you can see, um, we had to build in tea breaks and lunch, and this was a cultural thing, right? <laughs> you have to, like, so, and the times for everything also. Um, and so we, this is how we kind of structured our day. It was pretty full days. And then here are some photos to show you. Um, so these are, we brought all of these supplies with us, and we did, these are the skill stations and the simulated scenarios. Um, I have a couple. This is one of our residents, one of our pediatric residents here, too. Two of the pediatric residents came with us. Um, and then this was during the lecture style part. And this, her name is Kalalo Mjema. She's an emergency medicine physician um, based in Tanzania. And she um, actually taught most of it <laughs> when it was time to do the lecture part, um, which I think is appropriate because you know, she had a lot of the local context that made it more um, relevant. Here's some more photos, as you can see. So this is um, 
Pendo George. She's actually the head of the pediatric emergency department at Muhambili. Um, so we've actually, there's enough pediatrics now that we've actually, they've actually developed a, or they've opened a new pediatric emergency department. And then here's them teaching more about cervical spine stabilization. All right, so the evaluation. Okay, so this is, just to give you an idea, this is, we had some rhyme or reason behind how we approached our evaluation. So like I said, really important to know whether your training is doing what it's supposed to do. So what we did was, if you guys, I don't know if you know, heard of Kirkpatrick. I think his name is Donald Kirkpatrick. But he developed this thing called Kirkpatrick's Levels of Evaluation of Training. It was actually originally meant for business settings, so like business trainings, not for medical settings. But a lot of us have taken it in the medical world and sort of adapted it to, um, to be able to evaluate trainings that we do in medical education. So he has four levels. The first level is reaction. So after you do a training, you want to know how are your, how are the, your students or your participants reacting. Okay? So the way we measured that is we said, okay, let's give them this self-efficacy survey. And I'll show you that in a second. But basically, we wanted to know how comfortable were you, how confident were you in doing these procedures on children or managing children with these conditions. And then they would rate themselves on a, on a scale from one to five, one being the least comfortable and five being like the most comfortable. And I, like I said, we did that before and after. Then the second level of Kirkpatrick that you want to evaluate is learning. So how much knowledge are people obtaining and retaining? Um, so we did that through knowledge tests. So they were multiple choice tests based solely on medical knowledge and material that we were expecting you to have picked up during the training. Then behavior. So this is the critical action checklist I was talking about. So you want to measure how are participants' behavior changing based on your training. And then finally, results. So results is very broad and very vague. But one of the things we wanted to look at was 48-hour mortality. So when a child comes into the emergency department, in 48 hours, are they alive or not? So we would hope that you're acute or emergency management would be reflected within the first 48 hours. Some would argue even less, right, within the first 24 hours. After that, you're kind of not really getting emergency care anymore. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to collect that data for this particular trial, but it's something that we would like to um, in the future. Okay, and then how did we decide to, to, to do the study design? So not only did we have our 15 nurses who participated in the training and took all these different measures, we had a control group as well. So we had 15 nurses who didn't do any training at all. They were just doing their normal job, day-to-day, -day, hanging out in the ER, and we had them also take the pre- and the post-tests. Although for them, they weren't really pre- and post because they weren't doing anything in between. They were just sort of taking it twice. Because the idea is that, like, sometimes even though you don't participate in the training, somebody who does is, like, your friend or your coworker, and you're, there, you're teaching that person what you learned in that class. And so that could actually affect how, how your, perform, your performance, even though you haven't actually done the training. So we wanted to see, is there that kind of an effect? So what we did was we compared, so that was our, that's what we called our control. We had a controlled study, non-randomized. I mean, we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't get to randomize people to which group they were in. It sort of became kind of a convenience of sample of these people were going to do it and these people weren't. Um, and then we compared both pre and post, right, within a group, so within the people who actually took it, and between groups, so between the ones who took it and the ones who didn't take it. 
The only time we, the only data collection point we weren't able to get was for the checklists. There was no pre-data for us. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to get the IRB approved in Tanzania early enough to be able to collect the pre-data, so we only have the post. So what we were able to compare is the intervention group, the ones who took the training, to the, the ones who didn't take the training or the control group, just post-training. All right, so just so you can see, this is just, I want you to show you an example. This is what the beginning of the survey looked like. So these are the different things we would ask them about, and we'd say, one to five, how comfortable are you with doing this? Okay, like treating a kid in hypovolemic shock or identifying the early signs of respiratory failure in a pediatric patient. And then we gave this to them before and after. And what we found is that basically, so the way you kind of want to read this is, this is the control group, right? So these are the people who did not do the training. This is your intervention group. These are the people who did do the training. So within the control group, if we look at their pre and their post scores, you're hoping that they didn't do anything, right? They didn't do any training. So you're hoping that their scores are the same. Right? Like there should be no difference between their pre and their post because they, there, was, there was nothing that happened to them. Um, and what you find here is their p-value. So anytime you see a p-value less than 0.05, that means, yes, there was a difference. If it's over 0.05, no difference. So this one's over 0.05. So you're like, okay, great, no difference, just like I would have thought. And then in the intervention group, you would hope the people who took the training, you would hope that they'd feel a little more confident after than they did before, right? So you'd expect to see some sort of a, um, and they do. So this number is 0.002, which is less than 0.05. So they did have a significant uh, increase in their confidence with performing these skills. And then this is just the time period pre, like if you control the, if you compare the intervention to the control group, pre and post. So pre the intervention, and there was no difference between the two groups. So that's just telling me that the two groups were similar. Like they're not that different at the beginning, but at the end. They were different, which is good. That's what you want. You want them to be different at the end. And then for the, this is the knowledge test. So we were evaluating their learning. Same thing. No difference in the control group, but there is a difference in the intervention group. So they gain, so great. Gain knowledge. They gain knowledge. Perfect. Same. When you compare one group to another group, beforehand they were the same. After, they're not the same. Perfect. So you're thinking, oh, this is great. This is going just like I wanted to. They're gaining knowledge. They're gaining confidence. But then we got to behavior. Then we're like, gosh, are we changing their behaviors? So basically, we said, okay, look, there are, you know, there's a lot of things we could measure, right? But there's three main pediatric emergencies that are very common septic shock, trauma and respiratory distress. Like if you work in this ED, you'll see a lot of kids come in with one of these three conditions. So we said, okay, let's develop an, a, a checklist for each one of critical actions. So for a kid who comes in with trauma, one of the critical actions would be you are evaluating their airway or you are evaluating their breathing. And so we came up with said, okay, these are the bare minimums that you really need to do when a kid comes in with this. And then yes or no, you either didn't or you, you did it or you didn't do it. No in-between. It's either yes or no. And then we had our research assistants literally just stand in the corner of these resuscitation rooms in the emergency department and just watch. So they watched these nurses do their job. 
when these types of patients would come in, and then they would just check them off on the checklist, yes or no, yes or no. And like I said, we had hoped to do this before any of the training, but we weren't able to. So instead, what we could compare is they looked at, they watched nurses in the training group do it, and then they watched nurses in the control group do it after the training, right? And you're hoping that the ones in the training group did it, whereas the ones in the control group did it, right? Well, what we found was that there's really only three actions where that was true. And there was like 30-some actions, that critical actions across the three checklists that we were hoping people would do. So there's only, and here you can see them. I mean, you, it's, it's just stating whether the child is or not anemic. And so, so it's just, there's only three out of like 30-some. So we're thinking, gosh, not really a change in behavior. Why not? Why do we think that, do you guys have any ideas I know, this was tough for us, too. It's kind of a blow to the ego, right? You're like, oh, like, I thought we, were, thought we were making some headway here. So, uh, so when you really look at it, there's a, couple, there's a few reasons why. So I, I think. So one is that a lot of the critical actions, which I'm sorry, I was hoping I actually sent them a, a handout for you, but I think maybe there wasn't one actually out there. Um, but if you look at a lot of the critical actions, a lot of them are says or states or you know, states that the child is in respiratory distress, or states, you know, X, whatever it is. And you know, when you're in a real live resuscitation, you may not be, you may be thinking that, but you may not be saying it out loud, right? And if the research assistant doesn't hear you say it, they're not going to check it off. So, um, so it's kind of like you know, when you take your driving test and you're like, I am adjusting my seat, I am, you know, checking my left and my right, or whatever, right? You know, you're being tested, so you're saying these things. Whereas in a, in a real life, like in a work environment, maybe you're not saying these things. So maybe that's not, maybe that's why we're not seeing it. Um, and then also, I think you know, you have to think about changing behavior. And it's funny because because. Dr. Enrique and I were talking about this beforehand. It's actually really complicated, right? I mean, I'm sure those of you who probably, there may be some people in the audience who've studied like changing people's behaviors, anything from, I don't know, stop smoking to et cetera. It's, it's very complex how to get people to change their actual practice behavior. So I think there's a lot of components that we're just missing, you know? Like, do they need ongoing mentorship? Or, or what is it that we really need to get people to do to change their practice? So something that we're still working on. So, oh, so tier one curriculum updates. Um, so this is the group that took the course. Um, that's me and some of the residents that helped me train. And then we actually published a paper out of it too, which was great, in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. All right, let's talk about tier two pilot. So this is much more fresh. I was just in Liberia in November doing this. Um, so what we did is we did, um, it was a little bit of a different setup because every um, hospital and every ministry of health has different expectations how they want you to do this. And so it was a little bit different. So what we ended up doing was we did the training three times um, for two days each. So it was like six days, and we did two days, one group, two days, another group, and two days, a third group. So we ended up training a lot more people. Um, we did not have a control group because that was not something they were interested in. They wanted to train all of their people. So it just seems silly not to train people. So, so we trained everyone. Um, it was 36 interns and residents total. Um, we did not, like I said, we didn't have a control group. So all, we just compared people to themselves. So, um, and then we had similar lectures, small group work, skill stations, and simulation scenarios. 
And then we used the same outcome measures, except for we were actually able to collect mortality data, which you're still in the process of collecting right now at, at JFK. So here's some photos of the training in Liberia. So again, practicing with the mannequins. We had them do a lot more small group work. That's one thing we learned in Tanzania was that people really liked working together on cases. Um, so we kind of we decided to capitalize that. And we broke people into small groups to talk about cases and things. And here they are again in small groups. Actually, it's really interesting too culturally. Like Liberians, if they if they don't feel like if they're not very interested in what you're saying, they will just leave. So, like, it is not, like, it is okay. You know, it's not considered a cultural no-no not to, like, just to walk out. So it's very interesting. You have to keep their attention. Like, <laughs> and this is um, Dr. Nisarenko, Michelle Nisarenko from um, Boston Children's Harvard. She was also teaching with me. All right. Um, so the evaluation. So stay tuned. We are in the process. We just finished collecting all of that data, and we're in the process of analyzing it now to see. We're hoping we made some changes based on the pilot that we did in Tanzania, and we're hoping to see, um, see some differences in the results. But right now, we're, we're still in the analysis phase, so my statistician is still cranking away at it. <laughs> all right. So what next? This is Tanzania. This is Liberia. So there's a lot of Africa there that we haven't quite reached. So what next? So you know, any good project, I think, when you're sort of halfway-ish through, should stop, take stock, kind of see where you are, um, and <laughs> see what lessons you've learned to help you move forward, right? And I think that's kind of what we decided to do here, is after November, we thought, OK, let's stop. Let's figure out what we've learned and figure out how to move forward. So when we considered this tier three curriculum, there were a lot of things that came to our minds. Number one is that tier three providers, right? These are our specialists, right? These are our emergency medicine specialists, pediatric specialists. How many of those actually exist in Africa? Not many compared to everyone else taking care of kids in Africa, which is like all pretty much tier one and tier two. So we were thinking to ourselves, gosh, does it make sense to put all this effort into creating this tier three curriculum that's really only going to be for a very, very small number of people, right? And then the other thing we're thinking is, interestingly, um, a lot of times when we would do this training, people would be like, ah, doc, this was great. So when are you going to be back to do this again? You know, and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, this was, you know, how do you explain to people this was sort of a one-off thing as part of the, the, the development process, right? This was my pilot just to get the curriculum so I could try it out one time and make sure the curriculum's okay, revise it, and now I'm going to make it available to you, you know, and you go ahead, go for it, you know? Um, or people would be like, oh, yeah, you know, I got this friend over in wherever, and they'd love for you to come do this again. And you're like thinking to yourself, really? You want some expat docs to come over to <laughs> your country and run this like training for, you know, who may or may not have like content expertise in your country or whatever it is that you see, you know, hmm, is that really the right thing? So then we kind of had this crisis of confidence, you know, we're like, so what are we going to do with this curriculum? Like we've created tier one, we've created tier two. I think we're going to Sounds like we're probably going to stop and not do tier three, but how, how do we use it? So we still have the lecture bank, still going to give it back to AFEM, still going to have them make it publicly and openly available on their website um, for people to download. But is that 
going to be enough? I mean, are people going to really, like, how many people really download stuff off the internet and just, like, use these, like, PowerPoint lectures and teach themselves, right? Mm, only super motivated people. <laughs> and I don't think, like, a lot of people, you're busy, right? You don't have, necessarily have time to do this. So these are sort of the questions that we're struggling with now. What do you guys think? Right. Yeah, totally. How do we get the word out? I mean, AFEM can help us with some of that, but really, I mean, you know, it's, it's tough, right? What if you don't have good bandwidth and you can't, like, you're in a place, you know, rural setting where you can't download these massive PowerPoint modules? I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do that on slow internet. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, a, that's an awesome model that's been used a lot for a lot of different trainings. And I think when we were in Tanzania, we did train a group of trainers. Same when we were in Liberia, we did train a group of trainers. Um, but I still, you know, it still kind of gets to that sort of like, it's who starts it, right? Like, like, do we start it? Or, you know, does that make the most sense? It's definitely the most resource intensive, right? Like, our time is expensive. And, like, getting somewhere, that's, that's expensive. So it's like, how do you do this in a sustainable way? Courses? I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. That's a really good thought. I think um, governments have taken interest in it. Um, because emergency medicine is so new, a lot of countries don't yet have a real actual certification process for their trainees yet. That's one of the problems that we're running into in Mozambique and some of the other countries. Um, but... That being said, I think that's a good thought around the ones, because a lot of them are actually coming to AFEM for the testing materials and saying, we need testing materials to test out our residents. Can you guys give us some? And that's kind of, that's part, kind of where some of this came from, too. So I wonder if we could flip it and, and, and bring it back to them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, how do you get people? I mean, I guess... I guess your idea about certification could be one thing, right, because they're required to do it. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like how, how do you get people to really buy into this when they already have so much that they're trying to, you know, balance right now? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Yeah, and then, like, if you don't have governments who are interested in it, how do you, you know, because if they're not going to push it and fund it, that's, you know, then you're kind of stuck being like, we were able to do these pilots because I was able to get some small grants, internal grants, um, that supported me to run the projects. But those are, you know, small. And, you know, if we want to take this on a bigger scale, how do you, you know, how are you going to pay for that? And, and should we even, you know, is it kind of colonialistic to be like, oh, we're going to go out and teach you and, you know, kind of thing? Or, you know, how should we, what would be the best approach to that? Yeah, we have been, um, we've been pushing them to collect data. Yep, definitely. Um, we do still, if, yeah, the only reason we were able to do these pilots is in these places is because we do have relationships with, with these hospitals and with a lot of these providers. Um, so they definitely are still collecting some data to try to, around trying to show, show outcomes and effectiveness. Um, yeah, to see if people, you know, a lot of that's been around getting people to support our efforts, but then, but then that still kind of brings me back to, so what are our efforts exactly? Like, how, how do we want to approach this? You know, how do we take this out? Um, well, thank you for your suggestions. I definitely, I think one of the things we're thinking about doing, and, and would love your th feedback on this too, is so, you know, that African Congress for Emergency Medicine, 
is happening again, right? It was in 2018, so it's happening again this fall in Kenya. And so we're thinking about trying to um, do a sip, like do another needs assessment around just the implementation part. Like, okay, we've got this curriculum, guys. How do you think we should use it? How would you want to use it? You know, like, do you want like an implementation team to come out and show you how to implement it and then you take it? Or should we make it region specific, like the West African college, the East African, the South African, the Central African, you know, and have champions in each place take it over? Um, you know, those are just some of the ideas that we've had around it, but we thought, mm, why don't we, I don't know, take it back to them and just say, hey, how would you want to use it? And just see what comes out of that. I don't know. Who knows? Sometimes people give you the answer you, they think you want to hear, <laughs> what they really think, but we'll see. But if you guys have any more thoughts on that, please do let me know. All right, so I just wanted to end on some final thoughts. I think a lot of people ask me, um, you know, oh, working in global health, you know, do you have any tips or what do you think that's like or so forth? So I thought I'd end with just some final thoughts, my humble opinions on working in global health. Um, so the first thing being that partnerships are paramount. So just like what I mentioned before, none of this would have been possible without our local partners. Um, and I think part of it is our job. You know, we obviously I love this work and I do this work, but you know, like I said, I was able to publish a paper out of it. So I am getting something out of it. And I think whenever we do, we have to think about how to to bring up our partners and get them something out of it too, right? And don't, you know, so, so you know, we, we never publish anything without putting someone else, you know, or several of our local authors on it, making sure that they get recognition for it too, because um, these partnerships are really how things are going to grow. Um, and I think striving for bi-directional partnerships, like I was saying, sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes what we, we call partnerships may not be necessarily all in both directions. Um, so really trying to make your priorities their priorities. You know, so you know, if your priorities are not, don't turn out to be their priorities, maybe, you know, I think a really good examination of why. Why is it that whatever I want to do is not what, you know, Pendo or Kalalo wants to do? Why is that? Um, and I think really trying to align yours with theirs is going gonna, is gonna to probably get you the furthest. Um, I think I learned this lesson very well, is remembering that when I say low resource settings, I'm, I'm also referring to human resources as well. So oftentimes my local counterparts are working probably twice as many jobs as I am because they're, you know, like I said, you know, trained specialists or faculty or academic people, they're very few and far between in a lot of these settings. So they're doing multiple jobs at one time that normally three or four people would be doing here, like say at UCSF. So, so just respecting that and just knowing that they're doing so much. And then always plan ahead. I love planning ahead. I'm a huge planner. But be flexible. Global health never turns out the way you think it's going to. Like that IRB that didn't go through in time and all these different things that happen to you, they're always going to pop up. So being flexible is super important. And then finally, <laughs> I love this sign. The, um, and I, <laughs> I take this from my colleague, Andy Tenner, who's also going to be giving a lecture in this series is please don't make vulnerable people more vulnerable. So when you go out to help vulnerable people, just think about how you're, what role you're going to be playing in that as well and making sure that you're not adding to their vulnerability. All right. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening to me for this entire hour. If you guys have any questions...
Yeah, so you were asking about this map, um, yeah, what it represents. So this map is actually all of the countries that have dedicated emergency medicine training programs in Africa. And the color coding is because some of them, they, have, they don't have necessarily a full-fledged residency. They may have like a slightly, something slightly different, but it's, it's, it is some sort of form, formalized training program. Yes, yeah, so Liberia technically has no emergency medicine training program right now. In fact, Liberia has very few specialties at all. So, um, yeah. So, for, so teaching them pediatric emergency care was huge. You know, they, actually, for them, it was great because they got pediatrics and a little bit of emergency medicine, which they kind of, I think they, they no, to be fair, they do have pediatrics. Um, JFK has pediatrics at their medical center or residency, but no emergency medicine. So it was a nice sort of... Um, opportunity for them to learn. Um, the only thing that's not on here um, that should be is Mozambique. So Mozambique has a, now has a residency program. So the question was, um, just to repeat your question, do the, ones, do the countries with formal emergency medicine training programs have better outcomes than those that don't? Um, I think that's a really good question. I don't know specifically the answer to that. I will, what I do know, though, is that the ones who have implemented um, specific emergency care tools, like especially the ones developed by the WHO, have shown improved mortality. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a lot of ongoing work around implementing the WHO's um, tool, their emergency care system tools, to try to, to try to build up in different countries to try to show that, yes, this does improve mortality and morbidity. Yeah, so the question was, um, uh, the, do the emergency care workers in hospitals go out to remote areas? Um, so it depends kind of how you define an emergency care worker, I think. Um, since emergency medicine kind of doesn't really, there's no real emergency departments or emergency medicine departments in a lot of places, um, we consider emergency care providers, when we talk about them as a whole, as anyone who provides uh, emergency care. And so that is happening everywhere. So that is happening in hospitals and outside of hospitals. Those who do have emergency care, like for example, in Tanzania, they do actually, they go out, um, like I mentioned that first res the, the first program of, um, class of residents that graduated, they went out to all the different parts of the country, um, to, to establish emergency departments where, wherever they were sort of either based or sent, um, so that they were trying to, to deliver that care. Yeah, so the question was if you're the people who, do they just recommend care or do they provide care or do they recommend people go to the hospital? So they do, um, they provide care when they work remotely, but they do, if it's something that cannot be um, handled well in the setting with the resources that, that, that's there, they may refer to, the, um, to a higher level center um, for more care. Yeah, yeah. So the question was, you know, in a lot of countries, right, hospitals won't provide care until you pay up front. Um, and are these settings like that? Yes. I, I would say the vast majority of African hospitals, at least in sub-Saharan Africa, are like that. Um, you do have to be able to pay for it. Now, that being said, there are sliding scale programs um, that exist in some hospitals, usually those that are supported by private funders, but they do exist so that if you, you can pay on a sliding scale depending on what your income is. Um, but yes, it does limit, um, like for instance, you know, 
MRI scans are extremely rare um, because most people can't, well, the machines aren't available and most people can't afford them anyway, but that can also be said for CT scans. Um, more advanced procedures that we do here, um, yes, if you're not able to pay for them, you will not receive them. So the question was how much of the pediatric emergencies that I see would be prevented by pediatric primary care? Um, it's a good question. I think it's tough because primary, you know, part of primary care, right, is because a lot of what we see is infectious, um, and primary care can prevent some of that, but it also can't prevent some of it. So if I had, and this is totally pulling a number out, if I had to guess, I'd probably say a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Of what I see can be prevented by primary care. But then I think not only do you have to have the primary care, all the other things have to fall into place too, right? Not only do you have to have the vaccines, but you have to have the early recognition and all the rest of it leading up to that. Yeah, his question was around, do I teach people whose native English is not English, and do it, how, how do we change our, our, our teaching modalities? So, um, yes, we definitely do. Um, all of the people that we've trained across Liberia and Tanzania were actually not uh, native English speakers. They do speak English proficiently. Um, that's part of medical training in a lot of these settings, actually, is that you is, it's done in English. Um, but that's why we always, but because we know that this is a second language, we always use, also, we partner with our, a local trainer who knows the local language. So, for example, Kalalo and Gemma in Tanzania, and we had another um, a gentleman, Hesu, in um, Liberia. Um, so they, although in Liberia they speak English, but it's, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's a different, it's different, it sounds different. We're not used to hearing it. Um, so um, we always partner with someone who does, who actually we try to do the, get them to do the majority of the teaching, and that way they flip between English and their native language. Yeah. Um, I've never actually tried to teach a group who's not proficient in English without a partner who speaks the native language. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, guys. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.